Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee, all the best. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing loss. Loss of family, loss of loved ones, loss of faith. And specifically, we'll be discussing loss in the context of excommunication. For listeners who may not be familiar, excommunication from a religion is the single most severe form of discipline which church leaders can enact. It's a severance, total and often sudden, from a person's community and from their faith tradition, and its fallout can be devastating. Humans are social creatures, so to be ostracized and exiled from their group is traumatizing. And often, high-demand religions that practice excommunication also teach that their rituals are salvific, which means that you need them to get to heaven. So it's not just banishment from a person's group, but banishment from heaven. To be fair, excommunication is also used to remove criminal or dangerous individuals from a community. And there's an argument to be made that some behaviors do indeed harm and do warrant separation from the group. But while this form of punishment may have its proper uses, it's clear that sometimes it's instead wielded as a form of censorship against proponents of progress and accountability. It's used to silence dissenters and to maintain a patriarchal status quo. So on today's episode, we're going to be digging in deeper to understand excommunication and its impact, as well as other relevant forms of loss. I'm joined for this conversation by Natasha Helfer, a therapist, writer, and podcaster who sat down with me for a deeply honest interview about death, divorce, and her own experience of being removed from her faith community. It's going to be both a heartening and harrowing conversation, but first I'd like to introduce our guest. Natasha Helfer is a licensed marriage and family therapist and a certified sex therapist, speaker, writer, podcaster, and supervisor with 20 years of experience treating individuals, couples, and family systems. We're so grateful to have her with us today. Welcome, Natasha. The three patriarchies, my father, my husband, My God, all three loved me, all three broke me, all three irrevocably internalized and intertwined in my identity, all three rejected me at my core in one way or another, too fat, too big, too loud, too critical, too angry, too proud, too smart, too sexual, too much. I, in turn, loved each of them, accommodated them, but not enough. Sought acceptance, sought approval, sought love, sought validation, sought agreement, sought healing. Desperately screaming, can't you see? Can't you understand what I'm saying? Don't you know me? How can this be happening? But I was not willing to give it all away, not at the cost of my very soul. So I lost. I lost them all. I will continue to love them, as I am also better off without them. They set me free in excruciating ways wrenched my fingers away in my desperate grasp, leaving me bleeding on the ground 
as they calmly walked away. More important things to attend to. Death, divorce, excommunication, expelled, cast out, abandoned. None my choice. Yet I am free. To be fat and big and loud and critical and angry and proud and smart and sexual and much, oh, so much. I am so much. Love. Most of all, I am big love. So now my voice soars, my heart sings, my body heals, my spirit leaps, my pleasure shivers, all with possibilities. There will still be weeping for what could have been from time to time. But remember, O self, it is better to be free. Woman redefined, I fly away from spaces that could not contain me, from spaces that could not complete me, from spaces that could not honor me, from spaces that would not see me. I am goddess from within. Thanks so much for reading that, Natasha. I'm wondering if you can tell us what led you to write this piece. Yeah, I wrote this piece pretty much at the heart of the excommunication process that I was going through. So it would have been, I would guess, in the days right before my disciplinary council was happening, because I remember having it already in my notes as I was looking through my notes before walking into that office. I, although somewhat hopeful that I wouldn't be excommunicated, I figured that decision had already been made by the church leaders just from the ways that I was being treated leading up to that council and how quickly it was all going and moving and the lack of willingness to have dialogue, you know, and things of that nature. So I I was preparing myself for that outcome. And, you know, it came at the similar time that I was also waiting for the state of Utah to announce my divorce being final. Those felt like two very big ejections in my life happening at a very similar time. And I just remember, you know, the symbolism of it all. And then having it coincide, you know, kind of with this idea of threes that we have in LDS patriarchy, you know, threesomes of male priesthood authority. And so, of course, my father was the next one that I thought of. And he had died a few years before all of this had happened. And my relationship with him was complicated, you know, again, similar to the relationships I think I had with my husband and my church, you know, where there was love and a lot of commitment and also a lot of distress and disagreement and 
conflict in a lot of the ways that we misunderstood each other. So I started thinking about that, you know, that these main male entities in my life had been in a lot of ways very similar and none of them evil, you know, none of them like (laughs) completely, you know, entities that I would say, oh, you know, they're just hateful and awful and all entities that had in many ways formed me and built me up and been a big part of my development as not only a human, but even as a female and as a woman and in my roles as a woman, but also had been quite harmful and not, I don't think necessarily intentionally, but just had been. And I think as many of us do throughout, oh, through faith transition and also I think through midlife, which I've been through both, we think about patriarchy and we think about the role of that and how that affects us in the relationships that we have in particular with the people in our lives who were raised as men in these systems who oftentimes are lovely and also many times are still part of a system who hurt us. So that was all very prominent and very forthcoming in those days that I was uh, sitting with a lot of a lot of contemplative pain, but also contemplative understanding of the cost of patriarchy in my life. Can you talk about that a little bit more, the cost of patriarchy in your life? It's been interesting. I mean, like I remember almost laughing out loud when I published this, you know, and it took me a while to publish this publicly because I didn't want it to feel disrespectful. And isn't that funny, right? Like I didn't want to be, (laughs) even in my pain, I'm still protecting these male figures in my life, but it's more than just particular people. It's more than just my father or my ex-husband. It's the institution of fatherhood. It's the institution of marriage. It's the institution of organized religion that I was criticizing in this poem. And so one of the comments that I received went something like, oh, Natasha, I'm so sad that you see God through this lens. And I'm like, first of all, you you know nothing about me or how I see God. And you're missing my whole point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my point here, when I say that my God broke me, it wasn't really about if I conceptualize a God at this point in my life, it's not about that. It's about the Mormon church. You know, it was really symbolic of that. And maybe because we don't do symbolism very well, we do literalism better in Mormonism. Maybe people miss that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and the church does claim to speak for God, right? Like Mm. the, the leaders of the church are pretty adamant that, you know, the word of the prophets and the word of God, it's the same, right? And so Mm -hmm. it's very... Mm -hmm. Yeah, very intertwined, right? Yeah, they take that role. They claim that role pretty proudly. Mm -hmm. But as I've been thinking about your question, you know, like what has it cost me? I think it has cost me a huge piece of my identity, really having to figure out who I am without these entities in my life. 
So even though there's this freedom that I speak of here, it wasn't a freedom I asked for, and it wasn't a freedom I knew what to do with necessarily. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very interesting given that I, you know, I consider myself a fairly feisty, fairly independent, fairly well-educated and even fairly privileged person, woman, you know, able to earn a living wage. And so, you know, here I am finding myself divorced in midlife and, and still terrified, still Mm. terrified. Hmm. And not just from a financial perspective, but not even understanding how to identify myself outside of the family circle right? Not understanding how to identify myself outside of that identity of providing for my children, that ideal family that I so desperately wanted to offer them as, you know, the right kind of mother. And intellectually, I could totally see it, right? I could be like, oh, Natasha, like, how many times have you walked women through this kind of narrative, you know, in your own office? It's so obvious. And yet it cut to my very core. And then I was like, oh, wow, like that runs deep. Like, it was probably one of the first times I really understood the word internalized anything. You know, we talk about internalized shame or homophobia or internalized 500 terms, you know, that you can internalize something so deep that you don't even realize it's there because you swim in it until you're plucked out of that ocean and you can't breathe because you only know how to live in the ocean and the water. And that's how I felt was a fish out of water and not really understanding how to navigate outside of that identity that I had to hustle for my worth through the lens of this, these patriarchies that had the right to decide whether or not I was worthy. Mm -hmm. They had the right to decide whether or not I was good enough, whether or not I was desirable enough, and whether or not I could enter their their buildings, you know, whether or not I would disappoint them or not, you know, when I think about a father figure and all of that really, you know, I started to realize how deeply ingrained that was, how important that was for me to feel that sense of, of making sure that they were okay with me. And then realizing, yeah, like they're really not, they're really not okay with me (laughs) to the point that I, yeah, like I'm, I'm out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And there's no amount of screaming or raging or cussing or patriarchal pricking or (laughs) saying the F word or crying or begging or even the other thing, you know, because, well, that's my ragey side, but even the other side, like the being stoic and elegant and giving space and being professional. And like, there's no, I like, I tried it all. (laughs) And there's no being friendly and being humorous and being kind and being loving. And it didn't matter what I tried. I was out. So one thing that struck me in the poem was that you were 
too much to be contained. They couldn't contain you, Mm -hmm. right? And so then when you talked just now about that metaphor of you being a fish in water and you'd always been in water, and then when you were out of the water, you couldn't breathe and it was scary. And I thought that's the two sides to that feeling, right? Like I'm out, finally, I'm free. I They couldn't contain me, so now I'm out in the air. And then suddenly like, wait, but all I've ever known is water. This is scary out here. So it's the two sides. And it makes me think of, you know, the question of like what you lost is part of what you lost, the ability to live in air, you know, like, is there anything they could have done that could have then contained you? The, the huge magnificence of who you are in all of that complexity so that you didn't have to ever be plucked out and like, I can't breathe, but that you could have lived in all of your different ways more freely. I believe that if I hear you correctly, is there a way that we could have coexisted where I could have been myself lived amongst these, you know, male entities and still been allowed to, you know, feel free enough to still be in relationship, right, with these particular entities in my life. And, and that requires differentiation, that requires an ability to tolerate nuance and to be somewhat flexible, and to, in a sense, be somewhat egalitarian, you know, in your ability to be willing to be uncomfortable for another person. See, and I had been socialized to be uncomfortable for them. That that I was right. I was able to do that because I was socialized to do that as a female, you know, navigating this world. And yet I was also somewhat socialized in the burgeoning of feminism, right? So this is where we where we're running into some problems <laughs> is that I, I wasn't socialized in, you know, the 1800s. I wasn't socialized in the 19, you know, in the early 1900s, I was socialized in the late 1900s. And so we're kind of in this mixy world where there's still a lot of that old narrative and old ritual and old role modeling of patriarchy while we're still having a lot of beautiful ideas of egalitarianism and a lot of speak about, oh, if you're a woman, you can do whatever you want and you can be who you are. And of course I support you. And I would say that all three of these entities told me those things. Mm-hmm. All three of these entities told me many times that they loved me, supported me, Uh, wanted me to achieve my most biggest successes. But when it came to push and shove, not at the expense of their discomfort. And that's where I could not tolerate that. Because I actually believed in that part of feminism, that I was allowed to dream in that, given the time where when I was born. And I could see my mother, you know, struggling with that at a different level, given her generation. And I can see, you know, the millennials and the younger generation struggling with that still, but at a different level than we are, you know, in our 40s and 50s. And so it's it's these shift that, like, we're shifting, but it's not a done work. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, we, we still live in an age where the wage between female bodies and male bodies is different. We still live in an age where in heterosexual marriage, the only egalitarian space that you'll find where emotional labor and domestic labor is equally shared is when the female works the full-time job and the male is a stay-at-home parent. And then it's equal at Mm. home. So we're not there yet, right? And so I think a lot of males who are socialized in our current culture believe that they are egalitarian and want to be. And yet they have not had the role modeling nor the legacy of equality nor feminism, right? None of us, none of us have. (laughs) So we're all kind of blundering our way into this new world that, that I believe in. So we're all, you know, some of us are doing better than others. So that's what I mean by I, I wasn't necessarily in spaces where these entities were evil or horribly abusive or, but it was not enough for me to be able to be comfortable because I am fierce and I am loud and I am big and I do complain and I will speak up when I see injustice, including my own. And did you feel like in all of these cases, the church and your husband and your dad, did you observe, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what, how would you describe the fairness with which those entities could be big or that they could describe exactly what they felt or that they could voice, you know, a complaint or that they could, they had freedom. So I I guess on a scale, how would you weigh the freedom that they had to be what they wanted to be versus how free you felt? Oh yeah, they could do whatever the heck they wanted to be. Okay. Yeah, they could do whatever they wanted to be they could do whatever they wanted to do. Now that doesn't mean that it was peaches and rainbows to live with me. (laughs) (laughs) I by no means want to give the impression that I was always a super accommodating and that, you know, I was always smiling and life was always wonderful. I was a pusher and I was an arguer and I was going to speak up and say, Hey, I'm not okay with this. And why is this happening? And hey, I want to talk about this. And uh, I don't think this is fair. And what do you mean you're done talking to me? No, uh, you're not done talking to me. And because I, why do you get to say we're done talking? You know, and, and any one of those entities will tell you that that was probably their experience with me and why they probably at some point didn't like being around me. But that did not preclude them from still doing whatever they wanted, including leaving me. <laughs> right. So, I mean, that was really the end all be all is that they still had the majority power. They still had the decision making power. They had the financial power. They had the power that we typically give male entities in patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it brings to mind, I just had lunch with some women that I am close to, and they were describing how their dad was extremely unpleasant (laughs) all through, you know, their growing up years. 
and he wanted things he wanted and super headstrong and super stubborn. And their mother would just run to serve him and just do anything she could to please him and to make sure he was he got what he wanted. And we were just and I said, why did she do that? And they just said, oh, because that's what she was trained to do. That was her role. That's right. So some women will adjust to patriarchy by playing that service role. And Mm -hmm. that is the best way they know how to survive the patriarchy. I did not do that. I fought the service role. I had a mother who fought the service role. And Mm -hmm. that was what was role modeled to me. My mother also fought the service role and still never. So I did have role modeled to me that strong Latin woman, boisterous personality. But when I really look at all the decisions that were made, it was my quiet Germanic father who still made all the decisions. It didn't mm. matter how much my mother ranted and raved. <laughs> um, mm. You know, she was the one who kind of was the one I remember the most because she was the most lively in our family, but it was still my father's. We lived where he wanted to live. We followed his career. He made the bigger financial decisions. Those were things that weren't necessarily made completely in partnership with my mom necessarily. And I would say that's, I followed that pattern fairly closely, you know, in my relationship as well, even though I was very strong minded and shared my opinions and oftentimes would, you know, fight if I felt like I wasn't being heard or things of that nature. So that's a different way to go is the fighter. And and that's what I think is interesting is that I would say initially, or at times, these men in my life, including the church, liked that about me. The men in the church liked that I would show up and teach and have ideas and be a leader and run the Relief Society and you know, like be in the ward council and have a lot of energy and say, you know, find solutions and have opinions. And sometimes they really enjoyed that, especially when it was useful and purposeful and it served families. Not so much when I would raise my hand and say, I don't agree with you. And I don't think that's the best decision for this ward. And I don't think that's how we should spend those monies. And I don't think that's how that activity should go. And I don't think that that's how we should serve that family. And I don't think that you should make them cut that particular cost in order for them to get funds for their Christmas dinner. You know, and I would voice those things very strongly and not in the primary voice and not with pastel colors. That was not my style. So then it was intrusive. Then I was too aggressive. Then it seemed like I wasn't Uh, playing nice. Mm -hmm. And that's when those gender roles that we've all been socialized to see as nasty, nasty women, whereas a man who will show up in a very similar way is seen as a leader or, you know, that aggression and man is seen as positive, whereas aggression in women is seen as offensive and disrespectful then that came back to bite me in the butt in those particular systems. But that's why in the poetry, 
I, you know, going back to your comments, yes, I, it is that juxtaposition. On the one hand, I am a fish out of water. I can barely breathe. I'm terrified. At the same time, that's why I tell myself, I say, remember, remember. That's the reminder to myself. It is better to be free because I do have to remind myself at times that even though it is scary, it is better to be away from those spaces that could not contain me and they could not complete me and they would not honor or see me because the system is not meant to honor, see, complete, strong female entities. That was beautiful and really powerful. And I loved that last part, especially talking about the structure of it, I think is really, really, really useful. That it's just not that you're, they wanted you to speak to a certain point, but only using the script that they decided was, you know, kosher, right? They got to set the rules. They got to set the terms of engagement, right? Just as a given, you don't even question. So... Well, thank you, Natasha. I'm so honored that you shared that beautiful poem with us and some of your thoughts about it. Again, I want to tell you how brave I think you are. I grieve to see the part that I saw of those three was the way you were treated by the institutional church. And I really grieve with you and you deserved better. And I'm really sad that happened to you, but so gratified and happy to see you thriving on the other side and I admire you, and I'm super grateful that you participated today and shared that with us. Thank you so much, Amy, for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and be part of this amazing work that you're doing. So thank you for having me. Thanks, Natasha. Before I go, I'd like to thank Natasha one last time for this wonderful discussion and for trusting us with this incredibly honest interview. It was such a pleasure to talk with Natasha again, and I'm grateful that we were able to share her story today. I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Alabest for our social media. And thanks to you listeners for continuing to share this journey with us as we learn from one another and challenge each other to grow. Make sure to listen again next week when we'll be joined by three incredible women, Ashmay Hoyland, Courtney McPhee, and an anonymous contributor who will be telling vulnerable and critical stories about coming of age in the traditions of the LDS faith. It's going to be a phenomenal episode and will conclude this season's ongoing series of stories from Mormon women. So be sure to check it out next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy.